Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are here on Tuesday to break down everything that happened this past week in the world of WWE. We will unfortunately be talking about SmackDown and we will also be discussing Raw through the course of this show. There is plenty to talk about as WWE is just over two weeks away from SummerSlam, what used to be called the biggest party of the summer. I don't think they're calling it that this year. At least I haven't heard that yet. But nevertheless, WWE's second or third biggest show of the year, depending where you rank the Royal Rumble. Maybe that's a conversation we can have in a little bit. Nevertheless, a big show coming up for WWE. Plenty happening on at least one of the two shows and a ton for us to talk about on this episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. But I would be remiss if I began any episode of this show without reminding you all that Getting Over is so it is long past time. You folks need to stop making me remind you. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Open up the app. Find the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Most of you are listening to us on those apps right now. Hit that five-star button on Apple. Also leave a review. Let everyone know how much you love the show, why you listen to the podcast, those ratings, those reviews are super helpful for us. They boost us up in rankings, get us more listeners, all things we want here in the world of getting over. And of course, every time there's a new five-star review left, we will read it live right here on the show. The good news is we've gotten some new five-star ratings recently, and I definitely appreciate those, but no more reviews since the last time I read one. So we need a couple more reviews. We will read them here on the show. As always, also please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We talk about wrestling all week. Whenever new episodes drop, you will find out first at Getting Overcast on Twitter. Now I'm going to welcome in our co-host, as always, Vintage Chris Vanini. And Chris, I'm going to welcome you in by saying this. There are some weeks by the time SmackDown ends Friday night, I'm sitting there and thinking to myself, man, I wish we didn't tape the podcast on Tuesday because it's sometimes is really tough to wait, you know, three, four days to talk about what happened on what is now WWE's A-Show, the signature program, SmackDown, on network television, of course, Fox, every week. But this Friday, I did not feel that way. And you may be saying to yourself, well, why, Silver King? Let me tell you, getting overheads, because Friday night, we got, unequivocally, the worst SmackDown of 2022 and one of the worst WWE TV episodes of any type that I've maybe ever seen. And this is an episode that had Roman Reigns return for the first time in a month. Two matches on SmackDown this Friday did not happen at all, including an exciting main event that was promoted all day and all show. Please listen to what I'm about to say, because this is not an exaggeration. There were five matches on SmackDown. They totaled 12 minutes and 46 seconds of match time. We got nine minutes and 24 seconds of live wrestling on television. 
less than 10 minutes of wrestling in a two-hour wrestling show. That's the length of what one match should be on TV, as we saw Monday night on Raw. We did not get a promoted main event that had very high stakes. Reigns did absolutely nothing in his appearance. They beat around the bush about a women's championship match that they just chose to announce after the show was off the air, as opposed to during the show. There was almost nothing redeemable about SmackDown on Friday night. And I'm glad that we're taping this on Tuesday and not Friday, because I think I'd be screaming into the microphone to the the emotion and anger that I had wasting two hours of my life watching SmackDown this past Friday. And even here, I wish I could just rant for an hour about everything that was wrong with this SmackDown at the top of this show. But we need content for the good, the bad, and the ugly. So I can't exactly do that. Chris, I know you didn't watch it live, but when you got to see it, could you fathom or believe the product for two hours that WWE gave us on SmackDown? Well, I I was letting you go for a minute there. I wanted to go back real quick. You mentioned uh, SummerSlam no longer the biggest party of the summer. Uh, I got to say, it's not, we're, we're not cool for the summer here in Texas either, if you remember that. Was it Demi Lovato did the theme song that one year or something like that? Cool for the summer. They, they hit it over and over and over again. It's 100 degrees every single day in Texas right now. And it may be the hottest summer we've ever had. And it's driving me crazy. And so when it comes to, I, I may just be kind of out of my mind in general, but when it comes to watching wrestling or watching the last two episodes of WWE television, um, I was just kind of confused and baffled by a lot of it. I didn't watch SmackDown live because SmackDown is no longer a show that you need to watch live. It's just, it's not any good. And so Adam does it because he wants to live tweet it for all the grateful getting overheads who follow the account. And you, and you ranted quite a bit on the Twitter account. And I was like, I don't know if I want to watch this SmackDown. I kind of want I to try just- not to do that. I don't, I don't want to turn people <laughs> off and, and have them think like our account or our show is just ranting on WWE, which is what every show does. We look, we right. literally look for the great, the good, the bad, and the ugly and everything and WWE, AEW, whatever. But you got to call it like you see it sometimes. And I mean, all we call it like we see it all the time, but you even on Twitter, like you just got to be honest with what is in front of you. And I was watching that show and it literally got worse and worse as it went on. And so I ended up watching, I didn't watch the whole episode back. I watched all the YouTube clips and that included essentially all the wrestling on the show. <laughs> they're like I mean, the clips min- must have been 30 seconds each. I don't know. They're, they're like three minutes to four minutes each. And based on what I saw in there, that included almost all of the wrestling on the entire show. So that was not good. We'll get into more of the details later. And then Raw happens. And I was just generally bored by the whole thing. Um, they're, they're, the lack of star power at, at the top has been an issue all year, whether it's people not being there or whether it's injuries. And we're now a little more than two weeks out from SummerSlam, and I'm just like absolutely not feeling it right now at the moment. And uh, yeah, a, a rough weekend of, of WWE television, well, uh, in my opinion. Well, let me first say that I'm I'm very dismayed that you're not matching my energy with with the SmackDown criticism. Okay, I I it's mean the heat. It might be the I, heat. I I almost wish that you had sat through the two hours of SmackDown to understand like how debilitating it was for my mental health to <laughs> to watch that and say I this is something I do every week. I watch this show and so, look, 
when SmackDown is bad, you know, it's bad. We call out, we say what's bad, we say what's ugly. And there's usually a couple good things on the show. There's a good wrestling match or two. There's a storyline that interests us. A couple of weeks ago, there was the debut of Maximum Male Models, which completely threw me by surprise how much I liked it and all this type of stuff. But I sat and watched this show on Friday and I just, I couldn't fathom who put this together and thought, this is compelling television. This is going to keep people watching. And I know that SmackDown on Fox on a non-holiday week, it's going to do 2 million no matter what. Like, I just know they know it at this point. But man, they have, they have even when there's been bad SmackDowns, they've been so much better than this. This episode had no redeeming qualities to it whatsoever. There may be a couple things later that I call good just because by comparison, they weren't the worst stuff in the world, which is what, what else we got over the course of that SmackDown. But when you have a wrestling show, and I don't care if WWE calls it sports entertainment, it's a wrestling show. And you have five matches that to the live TV audience, they only get to see nine minutes and 24 seconds of action. That is straight up unacceptable. And when you go through an entire day and promote, we're going to name a number one contender in the main event, and we're going to do it in a banger, big meaty man slap and meat match, Drew McIntyre, Sheamus. We've seen it a million times, but you know what? It bangs, and it's at least a reason to sit through even a bad show to say, you know what? We're at least going to get 12 minutes of McIntyre and Sheamus, and there's going to be a storyline development. And to then not even deliver that on purpose It was, again, it got worse and worse as the show went on. Now, Raw, you said to you, was boring. And one one quick thing about SmackDown uh, before you move to Raw. Uh, It was in Fort Worth here near me. I could have gone. I had zero interest in going to. I wouldn't go to SmackDown. And I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't go to Raw either. Like I went to. AW blood and guts. I go to the AW shows that are around here because they're a pretty fun live experience. The and I'll go to WWE pay per views. Obviously, WrestleMania and Money in the Bank last year. But the weekly WWE television shows do not seem to be fun in person. And if you if I had gone to that SmackDown and got nine minutes of wrestling, like I would have lost my mind. Well, I think every show obviously is a little bit different. There well, are you get definitely dark, you get weeks. dark matches and yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but not Sunny. There are definitely weeks where like you go if if you were in attendance at a Raw or a SmackDown, I could see having a blast. Like last week's Raw. That crowd was insane. The whole show. Like they they deserved a, a ton of credit for making the show even more exciting than it was on screen. So I definitely think there is value in going to a Raw, especially if the tickets are the same price, you get three hours. I know it's long. I know there's a lot of commercials, but even now during Raw, they wrestle during the commercials. So you're getting more action than you're otherwise getting on TV. But SmackDown, if I, I like you said, Fort Worth, I cannot imagine anyone having been in that crowd for SmackDown on Friday and being happy with the experience that they got. Anyone who is 15 years of age or older, kids, they don't know the difference really. But, you know, older than that, you're watching that and you're like, what did I just see? What was the purpose of this show? Why was Roman Reigns here? Even you could make a case. Why did they yep. promote matches and not deliver them at all? Raw, on the other hand, you said you were bored during it. I would call it mostly uneventful, but it was a more than acceptable episode on Monday night. We got Brock Lesnar, good wrestlers actually wrestling, and even a twist in the main event match. It felt like an in-between show with the big push for SummerSlam. 
I don't know if it's going to start this Friday or if it's going to begin next week, but compared to SmackDown, Raw was written by Shakespeare. You know, it was a masterclass in in professional wrestling television compared to what we got from SmackDown (laughs) on Friday. They at least used a little bit of brain power and a little bit of booking effort. Judgment Day was back. Finn Balor and Rey Mysterio fought. Like, there were, there were takeaways from Raw where you could say, hey, that was entertaining, even if it wasn't that exciting. On SmackDown, there was none of it. It was just shit after shit, and it piled and piled up until, really, the only thing that you could say at the end of SmackDown. That is one big pile of shit. And I didn't even plan that sound drop. That just happened. So, yes, SmackDown, awful. As bad as wrestling television can get. Raw, I thought it was perfectly acceptable. You asked uh, who was putting this together. Uh, the person putting this together is the person who's currently under investigation for a lot more uh, hush money payments, which which we'll get into here in a minute. So uh, yeah. I, I don't know if that's playing any role in everything, but it remains well, to be a strange thing floating over all of it. Well, I do think it might have because there was a report that came out from PW Insider that Vince McMahon arrived at the arena in Fort Worth for SmackDown later than usual, and that the booking of SmackDown on Friday was 100% Vince McMahon, quote unquote. Now, I know what you're saying to yourself. Isn't every show 100% Vince McMahon? And I guess in some respects it is in that he's, of course, the one making every final decision and approving what happens and what doesn't happen. But apparently SmackDown was everything Vince wanted to happen on the show happened. Whereas in other weeks, he relents and lets someone else's idea through or approves other people's plans, so on and so forth. Apparently, SmackDown was 100% Vince. And that came out after the show, after I was already ranting and thinking it was what one of the worst WWE TV shows I've ever, I've ever seen that, that I can remember, a, a main show, SmackDown or Raw. So I mean, I don't, you know, there's a lot going on with Vince. We're going to talk about that to open the main event. We're going to go over everything that happened across SmackDown and Raw this past week in WWE. But I I really could not contain myself with the anger and the, look, we, we have passion for wrestling doing this show, right? This is supposed to be fun for us. It's a break from our jobs. And I will tell you that watching SmackDown on Friday, it felt like work. And it should never feel like work. Watching wrestling, even for podcasters, even for people who cover it, just kind of like sports. Like we we both work in sports and there's many days where you just, you don't really think about the work aspect. We're having fun. We're doing things a lot of other people would dream of doing. But there are some days where it really feels like work. And I'm not saying it's the first time ever because I've gone on media junkets for WrestleMania and I've done a lot of work. Um, with with major WWE events for my for my job in the past, but for this podcast, Friday night was the first time that doing this podcast felt like work, <laughs> and it really should not feel that way. Fair enough, that's a good point. All right, Chris, we got plenty left to talk about on today's show. We've already mentioned some of the topics that we will be covering, so let's not waste any time. Let's do what we always do here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast by sliding into the main event. <laughs> And we are going to kick off this show with the biggest news in professional wrestling right now, which remains Vincent Kennedy McMahon under investigation by the WWE Board of Directors, utilizing outside counsel to look into hush money payments paid uh, to what at least was one woman and has now been revealed as perhaps multiple women 
um, for affairs that he had, of course, outside of his marriage. Now, Chris, you went ahead and read the Wall Street Journal story. Uh, you broke down the need to know information from the second kind of uh, release of documents or, or release of information coming from the Wall Street Journal reporting on this incident. So why don't you go ahead, take the mic here and break down what everyone needs to know. And we'll discuss it kind of on the back end coming out of this Wall Street Journal story from last week. Yeah. So to nobody's, to probably nobody's surprise, uh, turns out there uh, was more to the Vince McMahon story than one single hush money payment to uh, a former paralegal with the company. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported last week at least three more hush money settlement payments uh, from Vince McMahon to former employees totaling more than $9 million on top of the previous uh, $3 million report. Uh, among them, most notably a now quoting from the story here, a $7.5 million pact with a former wrestler who alleged that Mr. McMahon coerced her into giving him oral sex and then demoted her and ultimately declined to renew her contract in 2005 after she resisted further sexual encounters. According to people familiar with the matter, the wrestler and her attorney approached Mr. McMahon in 2018 and negotiated the payment in return for her silence, the people said. Uh, there was also a $1 million settlement in 2008 uh, from a contractor who alleged that Vince uh, sent her unsolicited, unsolicited nude photos and sexually harassed her. There was also a 2006 agreement for $1 million with a former manager who had been with the company for 10 years, and Vince initiated a sexual relationship uh, with her. Uh, the story added that it couldn't determine whether the board probe includes these other non-disclosure agreements or how far back the investigation will go. Um, and the reporters also said on Busted Open Radio that you can probably expect more of this to come because as as they do more reporting on it, more people feel more comfortable coming out and talking uh, to them about it. So this definitely is not the end of it. Uh, There's also a $1.5 million settlement in 2012 with an employee who made misconduct claims against John Laurinaitis. Um, and it, to me, this completely changes the way everybody talked about the first story. Absolutely. Um, yep. The the first story WWE claimed, by the way, coming from the WWE side, that the first one was a consensual relationship. This is now reporting allegations of coercion, of retaliation, of sexual harassment. This is this is the real serious stuff. And frankly, it being portrayed as infidelity and misconduct in headlines and stuff like that, I think just kind of underplays it does, just yeah. how big of a deal this is and how this needs to be framed in a much more serious tone. Um, and again, it's it's there's probably going to be more of this. The Wall Street Journal said that they're, they're, they're working on more. So that's what uh, was in the latest story. And I, I like I said, I think it completely changes uh, the tone and the framing of kind of how we look at what's going on here. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So good journalism and good journalists basically peel back layers of an onion until you get to the core, right? What, what's the main topic? What's the main point here? And I think the first story that came out, the first allegation, um, you know, that WWE's board of directors was looking into, it could be, I don't want to use the word excuse, that's not the appropriate word, but it could potentially be overlooked by the board by saying, hey, the guy had an extramarital affair and paid her to be quiet so that his wife, you know, his wife didn't find out or no one else found out. And it was his personal money. So he didn't use company funds. 
And yeah, Vince McMahon is a scumbag, but he's not a scumbag that we need to kick off the board or, or try to remove his chairman or try to force him into selling his shares of the company. That is very much the mindset I think that people took out of that first report. And it's something that we shared here on the show. We said, we don't really think this is enough for Vince McMahon to be pushed out of WWE for all the reasons stated, most notably that he controls the vast majority of voting stock in the company. You specifically said that at least that first story did not include allegations of coercion. Exactly. Exactly. In, the, in this one. Does. This one does. This completely changes the game. This, not just the fact that it's coercion, that it is someone you know was fired when they refused to continue to have a sexual relationship with him that they were coerced into, but also the fact, and an employee is an employee, don't get me wrong, whether it's someone in the office, whether it's a wrestler, both people are equally important. But the fact that it was not just an office employee that he was doing this with, but talent and people that were contracted to work for WWE, that plus the coercion aspect creates such a cloud over Vince McMahon where you say to yourself, how could this person be allowed to continue operating in any aspect of the company? Number one, he now has legal concerns to deal with beyond his status in WWE. But when it comes to WWE, which is what we're primarily talking about here, how can you take someone who has one allegation, at least for now, likely to come multiple allegations, just seeing and, and kind of assuming and guessing how this is going to play out about coercing talent and then punitively penalizing them for refusal to either start or continue these things. How can you allow that person to be around talent? You can't, just like you can't allow them to be around front office employees. Again, there may have been, if it was only the first report, a way for WWE to squeak and kind of weasel and twist and turn its way around it where maybe Vince is no longer chairman, chairman, but he retains his voting stock and he leads creative, but he's no longer the public face of WWE. This, this, there's no way that I can fathom if this is proven out to be accurate, which if you're talking about multiple documents and multiple people, and again, this is just the second layer of the onion to be peeled, I see no possible way this person is able to retain their role as lead of creative, working with talent multiple times a week, not to mention that person's role as chairman and CEO of the company. So this to me was 10 times more damning than the initial report, which on its own was despicable and disgusting. I just didn't think that first report would lead to change. This one, if this continues to prove out into you know, these, these allegations being accurate and further layers of the onion being peeled, I think this is completely unsustainable for Vince McMahon. And I think it's only a matter of time before he's completely out of creative, out of his chairman role. He may maintain his stock, but sponsors, networks, people are going to put pressure on WWE because this is not being reported by the Wrestling Observer Newsletter and Fightful and the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. This is being reported by the Wall Street Journal. It probably soon will be reported and dove into in greater detail by perhaps 
the New York Times and the Washington Post. This is major media. This does not get swept under the rug. WWE is a publicly traded company. Shit's about to go down. Yeah, this, you know, when you've got coercion, you've got retaliation, you've got people not getting their contracts. Retaliation, renewed. that's the word I was looking for. This this is, yeah. this is all that stuff that happened in, in, in Me Too back in the day. All, all the, 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 the power dynamics here of, of using sex or, or forcing sex or coercing to sex to create power over somebody and then retaliating against them in various ways. That is obviously a huge, huge problem. And I don't know how you can leave somebody in charge, even of creative at that point, especially when you said it's involving talent. This is still the in his current role, even stepping away from CEO or chairman, he is directly determining what happens with talent. And as for if anything can happen, like we said, he the family still has controlling shares. The Wall Street Journal story itself said it's not clear that they can actually get out of it or anything. It's only going to happen if Vince or, or people around him believe that him stepping away would be beneficial to the company. We have not seen any uh, comments or, or much reaction from sponsors, from partners yet. Uh, fi- uh, Denise from, from Final Four Wrestling Observer reported that the Netflix series on Vince has been pulled. That's the only report I've seen of that. So th- mm-hmm. like, there's still not much going on yet. And until something does, I don't know if anything will happen with Vince. But you've noticed that he's not coming out on TV anymore, uh, which was ridiculous in the first place. <laughs> it was absurd. Yeah. And. So, so I, I don't, I don't really know where this goes next in terms of Vince, other than kind of waiting for more shoes to drop here. Uh, well, it, it's, it's a ridiculous situation, and I think everybody involved would probably agree that it would be best to go. Also, the, the filing to the shareholders uh, says that it is basically materially important that Vince McMahon stay with the company. That if, if he was no longer with the company, that the company would be damaged. The quote. The quote is, the success of WWE hinges on McMahon standing as its leader, which I can't believe they put into an investor report. That, to me, is unfathomable. They're saying, how old is Vince now? 76? I'm Googling it while we we talk here. They're saying that to to their investors, and I I, I don't know who approved this, WWE is saying to its investors, our company's success hinges on a 76-year-old man leading us. That's not to say that people who are age 76 or older are not capable leaders. Of course they are. Okay, everyone, everyone's different. Everyone's mental capabilities at different ages are completely different. But what it's saying is that someone who is 76 years old, who is much closer to the end of their life than they are even the middle of their life at this point, someone that age. Without him, you pull that pin, this company falls apart. Why would you ever include that in yeah. investor material? That is the most nonsensical thing. You want to talk about like unforced errors? We talked about Nick Khan booking money in the bank on UFC Saturday in Las Vegas at a stadium on the same night. Complete unforced error for WWE. This is another unforced error for WWE. Now, does what's printed in their materials actually matter? No, because I think informed investors will realize, well, if something happened to Vince, whether he's removed, whether he 
you know, passes, whatever the case, Stephanie McMahon's been there for, you know, 20, 30 years, however long. They have someone to step in for creative. Nick Khan is doing a good job from a business standpoint. I don't think WWE stock is going to completely collapse if Vince is no longer there for one way or another. But the by, the way, the, 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 by the way, the stock has not materially changed it hasn't at moved. all. Yeah. yeah. But, but the fact that they included that line in investor material, it's just dumbfounding that people that operate within the billions of dollars are not smart enough to realize, yeah, we can't really say WWE, it's completely on the back of a 76-year-old man. What it should be is Vince McMahon standing as the leader of WWE has led this company to unforeseen successes and riches, you know, whatever the proper terminology is. Um, Vince will remain in that role because he's the best person suited for the job. However, we have this person, this person, and this person who also contributes significantly to the day-to-day operations of WWE. You lay out basically all the other people that are, contribute to the success of the company, and you don't just say it's all this one guy, which again is just absurd for investors to say that. It's one thing if you want to say it from a PR standpoint publicly to, to journalists, where you say, oh yeah, WWE, Vince runs the whole ship, but not for investors. That is very mm-hmm. dumb. But going back to the main topic at hand, there is a drastic difference between infidelity and trying to cover up infidelity and sexual misconduct, coercion, and retaliation. That is what this second Wall Street Journal story lays out. And that is what is going to create a massive problem. Again, the biggest issue that WWE is likely facing, because I think we probably all agree, chances are all these allegations and all these documents that have been uncovered are going to prove out to be accurate and real, right? So the question is, what the hell does WWE do here? The board probably has no power to remove him, which means it's going to come down to investors, sponsors, and those that WWE has rights agreements with to put the pressure on. My guess in how it plays out is Vince feels the pressure He has to step down as chairman and CEO. He retains his voting rights and he kind of fades into the background. But that is what you would say for like 99% of people. Vince McMahon is different. Vince McMahon is the guy who in the face of these allegations just strolls out onto his television, gets cheered, and according to Fightful, walks back in through gorilla position after that first SmackDown and screams, fuck him. As if to say, like Logan Roy, screw What the press and the media and all the haters think, the people love me. Well, yeah, they did show that, that SmackDown. Guess what? You haven't come out since these latest Wall Street Journal allegations. I don't think your response would be the same. And even if it was, it's in the context of a wrestling show, not what people actually think about you. So none of this, you know, I hate to say it, about Vince McMahon that's come out is overly surprising. It's much, it's mostly stuff that people, I don't want to say joked about, but kind of said you know, off the cuff in private conversations or talking on the IWC. Oh yeah, you know, that Mr. McMahon character on TV, that's probably what he's like in real life. And then you you piece together all these little parts of stories that you've heard and you create this character that you think Vince McMahon is. Well, this is proving out to be the character that we assumed or, or thought he potentially could be. I don't know that anyone believed he was going around doing all of this constantly despite allegations that have happened in the past. But to have four different circumstances that have only been uncovered to this point and to have these very clear allegations of 
misconduct, um, coercion, retaliation. I don't think there's any assault allegations, but still, those other three are are very important. To have all of this and all the pressure coming down on Vince McMahon at age 76, given the the tone and tenor of the of the country right now and has it as it has been the last few years i just do not think it is sustainable nor do i think it should be sustainable for him to remain in his role doing the job he's doing not just as chairman and ceo but even perhaps more directly working day to day person to person face to face with talent that is not a position that this man should be in any longer to to your point about the character i mean let's not forget the, the 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 arguably the greatest WrestleMania of all time, WrestleMania 17, was one of the main stories of that show was about Vince McMahon having a relationship with talent while his wife was in a coma. Like like it, it, it's seeing a lot of that character stuff play out in in real life later on is uh, incredibly troubling and disgusting and and problematic. And I I don't know I. I don't know where it goes. It, it's so interesting how how WWE spent so long trying to get to that mainstream level, and it did. And now it's there. There has not been a ton of I don't think mainstream scrutiny on this story. Uh, I, I I'm, I'm not sure. You know, this is obviously this isn't as serious as. Chris Benoit or something like that, where, you know, wrestlers did get pulled on to cable news shows all the time to talk about it. But, you know, even it's just kind of been presented as, you know, the board is doing the investigation and we'll see what happens. But meanwhile, it's only coming out because the Wall Street Journal is doing the actual reporting here. Well, so, let's not forget what's also going on in the country right now, where there's a lot of news that is allowing this to stay on page two. And yes, that is not, you know, it, this should be covered more extensively in 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 massive national media, in, in mainstream media, I guess. I, I hate using that term, but uh, it should be covered more. And it, the first report, they did have people on. I think Dave Meltzer even went on like CNN mm-hmm. to discuss yeah. it, right? But the second report has largely been met with quiet outside of social media. And right. that really should not be the case. But, you know, candidly, when you put it in the perspective of everything else that's going on in this country right now, and it's still WWE, which despite it being mainstream, it's still not as mainstream as like the NFL, right? Or or major sports or politics or a lot of these other things that are happening. It It is unfortunately a page two story that's not getting a lot of attention. So really at this point, these stories are going to keep coming out. I would expect further reporting on this before we get any type of announcement or decision from the board of directors. But I also don't know what the special board slash WWE board of directors can actually do. We don't have their guidelines in our hands. We don't know whether they can remove him ceremoniously from a title, even if he remains in control of the organization. I think Vince McMahon stepping down from chairman and CEO makes it, especially with the second report coming out, even less likely that he assumes that position again. I don't know. They'd have to clear him of everything in order for that to happen. I don't I don't think that's going to go down. And if WWE does try to sweep this under the rug and clear him, then I wouldn't be surprised if many of the women who have signed these NDAs come out publicly and then push the pressure on WWE to literally oust him. Otherwise, there's just going to be massive people, massive groups of people who I would hope refuse to watch the show or... Um, 
or a protest at least against the sponsors or the media partners. There's so many different ways this can go. The truth is we just don't know exactly know how it's going to shake out. And it actually is a little bit too soon to say. But again, the, the number one takeaway I have coming out of all of this is the first report was damning. The second report was damaging. And because of the contents of this second report, again, assuming they all prove out to be accurate, I just don't see how Vince McMahon can remain in his role leading creative in person, day to day at these shows. It's unsustainable. And, you know, the, the point of this conversation is not to then extrapolate that to say, well, what does that mean for WWE creative? Is stuff about to get better? That's a conversation we can have for another day if a change is yeah. made. At this point, though, it's really about what does WWE do and how do they do it? Yes. And remember, it's not like the WWE announced that they were doing this investigation. This is all we only know any of this because of the reporting of the Wall Street Journal to, to go back to my comment about mainstream coverage. So they've done a great job. It sounds like there's more likely coming. They're working on it. So we'll we'll see. Um, but this is incredibly damaging, troubling stuff that in a way doesn't surprise any of us, which maybe says something about all of us. And ultimately, it pro- it does need to lead to change in some form. And I, when is that going to happen? When is this going to end? When is when how when is the next thing dropping? We don't know. But this is obviously the biggest story in in wrestling. It's an incredibly serious issue, and we wanted to give it the proper amount of time here uh, on the podcast. Absolutely, we know this is a wrestling show. You guys want to hear us talk about the matches and storylines and SummerSlam, but this is the biggest story in the industry right now. It needs to be discussed. And I hope that we did a uh, decent or more than decent job uh, breaking it down from our perspective. So, Chris, with that, let's move on to the actual in-ring product, the wrestling or in SmackDown's case, lack of wrestling uh, that we got this week in the world of WWE. Let's uh, wrap up the main event with our second part here, which is a long part. It is the undisputed WWE Universal Championship picture going absolutely nowhere this week, completely stuck in neutral. So let's break down what happened on TV. Uh, Roman Reigns opened SmackDown with the bloodline. Uh, That was his first TV appearance in a month. After Reigns Pyro, Theory stood at the Titantron with the Money in the Bank briefcase and SmackDown went to commercial. Literally, the only thing we got before the first commercial break was a ring entrance. Nothing (laughs) happened at all for the first 14 minutes of SmackDown. How WWE thinks that's compelling television is completely beyond me. So Reigns explained why his life is so good. He points out Paul Heyman looks concerned. Heyman shook like his body shook with the mic in his hand. He said he loves the bloodline. He loves Roman Reigns. But Brock Lesnar's a problem because he doesn't respect them and he doesn't respect Reigns. Heyman reinforced the last tagline that I discussed. Uh, what, what was it? Uh, last match, last time, last man standing. He He brought that out again. He said, this is Lesnar's last chance against Reigns and Lesnar historically comes through in do or die situations. Heyman was really passionate saying Reigns needs to get savage and violent by putting on a career performance to put Lesnar down in 10 seconds or for 10 seconds. Uh, Theory entered and he jogged around the ring with the briefcase. He taunted a little bit before leaving and Michael Cole on commentary again teased the cash in at SummerSlam. Then later backstage, Theory said he wants revenge against Lesnar and doesn't like Reigns' arrogance. He was cool with people not liking him, and he repeated that Reigns and Lesnar should be ready for him at SummerSlam. Madcap Moss stepped in, saying he'd love to shove the briefcase in Theory's mouth. Uh, Heyman was exceptional. 
okay, in this. He just was. He was fantastic. He's unmatched when it comes to promoting a match or an event on the mic. He's the best maybe to ever do it. The start to this, though, was frustrating. It ended up being a strong segment overall. And the theory troll job is really exactly what the briefcase is about. It's what I've been talking about on this podcast for years now. It ended up being the best segment of the entire show. I didn't think that would be the case after the first 20 or 30 minutes. But it was also disappointing to get Reigns on TV for the first time in a month and have nothing substantial happen. Yes. Uh, Every time he shows up, the rare times he shows up, I always just think, man, like, I miss this dude. Like, like he's been so good as the Tribal Chief for so long. And to now, you know, starting with around WrestleMania, to just, like, not get him all the time. Now it's like, man, this sucks. Like, they, they finally did it. They built him into the into the big bad, like, guy that we always thought he could be. And at the height of his power, he disappears. And so, like, every time he shows up, I'm like, oh, it's cool to see him. But then, like, you're waiting for something. And there was a sign behind Roman Reigns during his promo. Ah, uh, yeah. It said, it said, no Roman match tonight again. And just like, I think people are getting frustrated. And there's a difference between not liking him as a heel and not liking him because he's not showing up to your show. Like, that's disappointing people. That's going to make people not want to go to your show. Um, So that was a mix of whatever. Um, I do like Theory being around Roman and Brock because, you know, I don't think he's going to cash in at SummerSlam. I don't think he's going to win the belt anytime soon here. I don't even know if he's going to be the guy. I don't think he's going to be the guy to take it off Roman. No. But the point of the Money in the Bank briefcase is to elevate somebody. And putting him around Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar constantly is a good way to elevate him in the eyes of fans. You exactly. don't need to have him wrestle. You, you know, you don't need to have him get beat up. You don't even have to do anything. Just he's in their presence. That's that. That's a that's a rub essentially. It, 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 he's just around them. They're thinking about him and that type of thing. I thought his promo work on top of that stage on the uh, on the on the ramp there was it looked good. He delivered it well. He's really solid on the mic. He, he's not amazing, but like. He talks with a confidence that he feels like he deserves to be here, be there, which is which is good to see. Um, so so that was great. Um, did did we get into the Brock stuff? Like kind of his whole problem. No, I just talked about that? SmackDown. I'm going. Yeah. I, go in, I go in order. SmackDown. Then yeah. Raw. So well, I'm, I just be- want. Yeah. I just want. I'm just continuing the rest of my theory part here. But like, I, I liked what I saw from Theory over these two episodes. Yeah. Well, Theory is. I mean, he's 24 years old. Like, and people really forget this. Now, is he being pushed really hard? Is he being pushed a little bit down our throats? Sure, but everything that you just said is accurate. They're putting him alongside Roman Reigns, Brock Lesnar, and Paul Heyman. And this is how you kind of start to develop getting someone over. What did WWE do with Randy Orton? They had him be the legend killer. They had him annoy and work with many of the people in the company who were the most over and the biggest stars. What did they do with John Cena? A little bit different, obviously, but he came out. He slapped Kurt Angle across the face. Then he got a handshake from The Undertaker, right? Like, like this is what you do. You put people who you think have a big future in your company at a young age around the other big stars in your company. So it's working to that aspect and the aspect of teasing briefcase cash-ins and, and talk about it and, and having them kind of troll by skipping around the ring. That is all really positive stuff. And it was a good use of theory. And like I said, to me, this was the best segment of the entire show. I had no idea that would be the case 
at the time, but it was <laughs> it was the best thing we got because we got a great Paul Heyman promo. Sure, Roman Reigns was there at least, and the interaction with Theory proved to be positive. But let's talk about the second half of the Universal WWE Universal Championship picture that happened on SmackDown. So, promoted all day and all show was a Drew McIntyre versus Sheamus number one contendership match with the winner going on to face whoever the champion is at Clash at the Castle. McIntyre cut a promo earlier. Sheamus made his way out with eight minutes left in SmackDown. He coughed and said he may have a little bit of the COVID and can't wrestle until he's cleared. So Butch took his place, not in a number one contendership match, just took his place in in the ring and lost to a Claymore in 90 seconds. Then Ridge Holland attacked and immediately ate a future shock DDT. McIntyre threatened Sheamus with the sword, and they did an absurd spot to end SmackDown, where he swung the sword and broke the top rope, which we've seen before. But not just that. When the top rope broke, fire, Kane's fire, (laughs) shot out from all the ring posts. Seriously, what the fuck was this? The only segment of the show that could have redeemed this episode of SmackDown was falsely advertised on purpose the whole day and for the entire two-hour broadcast. And not only, Chris, do we not get the match, they actually fucking joked about COVID, which has killed one million Americans. That's just Americans. I hope not, but potentially some of your family, friends, coworkers. Again, they joked about it as a reason to not deliver a promoted main event. And even if you kayfabe it completely, Sheamus is out there coughing, claiming that he has COVID, yet is around his people, Andrew McIntyre, not to mention the referee and fans. And then on top of this, you give Butch a match where you can at least accomplish something by letting him fight Drew six or seven minutes, have a good match, make Butch look a little strong. Instead, you beat him in 90 seconds and make him look like a total joke. Former NXT UK champion, an incredible technical wrestler, a young guy in his own right who has already put on pretty decent matches on SmackDown. 90 seconds against Drew McIntyre in the main event. This was pathetic. And then Chris, and I'll finally stop after this, on top of that, you do the, an insulting spot with the top rope breaking because of the Claymore. It's one thing to have this guy carry a sword. It's another thing to have him break the top rope. But fire shooting out of the ring post? Come the fuck on. What is this, a cartoon? What are we doing here? This was so bad and so insulting to the audience that I could not stand watching SmackDown. I'm so angry. I'm not even giving a sound drop. No... 0.0 or I hate this crap or none of that. That is how bad this was. It was insulting on every possible level. You pretty much hit every point there. I, I mean, the joking about COVID was insane, especially considering how the company largely handled things very seriously, uh, except for maybe in the early days when we didn't really know. Um, I was stunned by that line. Not surprisingly, they didn't put it on the YouTube channel. I went back and watched part of it, and that's when I saw it. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe he said that. And then to not do the match was like, what the hell? 
And then to end it with the sword spot that you already did at WrestleMania, and now you're adding fire to it, just like makes no sense. Like, I just it's completely nonsensical. How does Drew Mac- I, like? I know you want to be a company guy, whatever. Like, how does Drew McIntyre be told that? Hey, you're going to have you slash the ring, and then fire is going to come out. Like, what in the world? Like during the during the pandemic, Thunderdome era, Drew McIntyre was so cool. They like nailed everything about him that we liked the first time around that rose him up to become champion. Absolutely. And ever since he lost that title, they've had no clue what to do with him. And they've tried to kind of turn him into a cartoon character. They've added the sword. They've added the fire on the entrance. They sometimes gave him a kilt. Uh, and, 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 and then you get you get this. You get you get the big uh, the big D stuff you get. And now you get this. And it's just like. Who is this guy? Like, I've completely lost track of who Drew McIntyre is as a character. Now we're just adding bells and whistles around him. And if you're going to send him into a championship match at Clash of the Castle, look, it's in the UK. He's going to get an amazing reaction no matter what. Yes. But, like, go back to what we loved about Drew McIntyre the first time. Like, like, like he he's a guy I think can maybe should beat Roman for the title at this show, but not in this current form with fire and swords and all this nonsense. That's the thing. It's like, they're almost ruining his credibility for what? Like, like it'd be one thing, you know, they had Braun Strowman tip over cars for, you know, however many weeks on end, right? They came out with a toy of Braun Strowman tipping over cars, right? And so at least there was a reason for it. You're not doing that here. Uh, you're not selling video games. This isn't part of his entrance because he's not going to consistently break ropes. Like it's, it's the strangest thing on one hand, they do book McIntyre very well. He doesn't lose. He looks strong. He gets good time on the mic. Um, He, but when he's not around the title and this is WWE's problem with most of its performers, he's aimless. And it seems like they keep ratcheting up the bullshit, the stuff that surrounds him that actively makes him less interesting and less believable and less serious as a contender. You have a guy who can stand toe-to-toe with Roman Reigns in the ring. I'm talking about wrestling, promo, physically. He, he's a giant, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in a wrestling sense. He stands next to Reigns and you, you say to yourself, here are two guys cut from the same cloth. This could very well be if WWE is serious about this being the last match ever between Brock Lesnar and Roman Reigns, which let's hope it is. This is a guy who could be the next guy to step in and be Roman Reigns' forever opponents. Him and Seth Rollins, they're ready yes. made for it. But yep. Drew and, and Reigns, they stand across from each other. What was it, Survivor Series last year where they fought? Or was it two years ago? I don't remember. Yeah. But they stood across from each other. And what did you say to yourself? You said, Holy shit. I want to see this match. It's going to be a banger. And when they do this in the main event of Clash at the Castle, it's going to be, holy shit, this is going to be a banger, and the, and the crowd is going to be super excited for it. However, if they keep going down this path and have Drew do the comedy shit, if, if what's next? He's going to bring out bagpipes? Uh, he's going to put his kilt back on? He's going to start talking with an even greater accent? Like, where is this going to go? Because right now, it continues to head in the wrong direction. What he should be doing ahead of his return to the main event is shedding 
some of this stuff. You want him to carry yes. the sword, fine, he can carry the sword. He doesn't swing it anymore. It's just an accessory. It's with him. He starts wearing that leather jacket again and the black clothes and the street gear that you and I talked about during the pandemic era, during the Performance Center Thunderdome shit, where he comes out and he's this cool looking dude who's serious and he's ready to take Roman Reigns down for the title because no one else can do it. Instead, we have a cartoon character and it's very, very off-putting and disappointing. Yep, totally agree. All right, and moving on to the third part of this, let's go to Raw, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, It opened with a fairly heavily edited clip of Reigns from SmackDown with strangely inserted cheers and boos, both in the same video, which was odd. And then Brock Lesnar entered. They screwed up his pyro. Lesnar said, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. So he's going to slaughter Roman Reigns just like the hogs on his farm. Heyman came out and said, Lesnar may be the betting favorite because he's out for revenge, but Reigns is willing to do anything to retain his titles, including, I think I got this right, pulling Lesnar's heart out of his ass. I think that's what Heyman said. It was very odd. Theory then came out. He stood on the Mean Gene stage. He repeated what he said on SmackDown. Lesnar offered to fight him. Theory got angry over what Lesnar did to him at Elimination Chamber. And then WWE. And this is where I thought, Chris, that Raw was going to be just like SmackDown. It got better. But in this moment, I'm like, oh my God, WWE, they've, they haven't fallen off a cliff. They've pushed the entire creative department off a cliff because they showed a highlight from Elimination Chamber, which was a great highlight of Lesnar doing the F5 to Theory off the top of the pod from Elimination Chamber and him landing on the steel grate. They showed it three different times. All three times they showed it. Once Theory got thrown off the pod and was like falling down, they cut the screen to black all three times. And they did this because Theory landed safely. Like, like if you go back and watch Elimination Chamber, you watch the spot, look it up on YouTube or social media, whatever, Theory kind of lands on his feet because obviously you don't want someone being thrown off a pod landing on a steel grate directly on their face and body. That would hurt. And wrestling, you're supposed to take care of your body. So Theory landed safely. And because of that, WWE cut the clip and didn't want to show you a guy landing safely. If you're going to do that, you only show him throwing him off the top. You don't You don't go to black. You just don't right. air the remainder of the clip. Instead, right. you're going to black as if it was the finish of a match the day after a pay-per-view. That's what WWE normally exactly. uses that for, to make you go back to Peacock and watch the show. So I'm watching this and I'm just like, this is horribly edited and produced. Then Alpha Academy shows up at ringside. Otis gets in the ring. Chad Gable tried and failed actually to take out Lesnar's knee. Lesnar destroys both of them. Then this whole thing gets really good. Lesnar delivers powerful steel steps, shots to the face, to Gable and Otis. Gable flipped his entire body around two times when taking them. Then Lesnar beat both of their asses with a chair. He threw Gable into a cameraman with a toss belly-to-belly suplex outside. And then he F5'd Otis into the announce table to a huge pop. So Heyman was strangely the low part of this. Heyman and WWE production, which are the two things that you can usually count on. They were the negatives here. Heyman's promo was odd. The unnatural highlight took me out of it. But Lesnar, he was absolutely incredible. Gable, top-tier selling. The spot with Otis was super impressive. And it was cool that Alpha Academy got to work with him 
even if it was brief. This was a really hot start to Raw. And more importantly than anything else, Chris, it was a complete tonal shift from SmackDown in the best possible way. It was honestly like night and day. Plus, any episode of wrestling television that you begin with Brock Lesnar and Otis together, you know that's going to work. Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> so I thought it was an entertaining start to Raw, albeit with some issues. Yeah, it, it was an awkward start with talks of big hogs and tribal hogs and and hands going up asses and stuff like that. It, it was a very kind of weird start with the promos. But like I said, I thought Theory did a good job holding his own there too. And when Otis gets in the ring with Brock, and credit to Brock for selling it a mm-hmm. lot like he sold Keith Lee in that Royal Rumble. Not to that extent. Little, not to that not extent, to that extent but, but it was close. Yeah. He, he did the big eyes and the, oh, when he comes in, I was like, oh man, I want to see them go for like, 20 30 seconds here and then go on to the next thing we didn't quite get it we just got you know the guy hits him from chad gable hits him from behind and we get the beat down the the f5 through the table was great loved it you know in general you know we love alpha academy them getting both getting beat up by brock don't like the idea but i get it um i just would have loved a little bit of more meaty men there a little bit of more meat slapping um but this all worked you know, Brock continues in this character continues to be great on the mic. Uh, so I really like this. It's just it's just one of those things where there's nothing to add to the story. And we're just kind of biding time until we get to SummerSlam. That's what it felt like. It, a very in-between week for both shows where they have plans for the go home for the, the final you know two episodes, really, uh, for each Raw and SmackDown leading into SummerSlam. And they're just kind of biding their time to get there. They didn't want to pull out some of the things that they're going to do. What are we going to get? A contract signing, a face-to-face, you know, um, fully building on the tag team championship stipulation, maybe revealing the special guest referee, coming up with whatever the booking is going to be for the Raw Women's Championship. You know, is Gunther going to fight Shinsuke Nakamura on the show? These are all questions that we have about SummerSlam, and they can all be answered in, in the final two weeks leading into it. I believe there's five total television shows left uh, when you combine SmackDown and Raw before it. But again, having Lesnar on TV does raise the rent. So it was it was nice to see him. And they allowed him to be in action and and accomplish something that was exciting on the show. Yes. But yes, really, it didn't advance the main event. It didn't advance them. Right, just like Roman did nothing. He literally just stood there. Neither thing really advanced the main event of SummerSlam with the exception of Theory antagonizing both of them. Correct. It, at least with Brock, we got to see something. You know, they right. did something with him. You, they paid you bring off Brock his in, Right. You bring Brock, yeah, you bring Brock in, do something with him. He didn't do anything with Roman. That's one reason why SmackDown was so disappointing. But again, there's nothing, there's no, there's nothing to add to the story. There's, there's nothing. I, I, I'm not interested really in the story, but I was entertained by the opening segment. And at this point, that's kind of all you can ask for if this is what we're going to do. <laughs> all right, let's move on to the rest of the show. We, As you can tell, we have a ton still to talk about across SmackDown and Raw, and we are going to do it in the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, so Liv Morgan made her first blue brand appearance on SmackDown 
as of course the women's champion. Uh, this happened at the show's midpoint, so they knew it was going to be a big moment. Michael Cole got interrupted by another You Deserve It chant for her. He suggested Ronda Rousey wants a rematch. As early as SummerSlam, Liv said, bring it, because no one wants to stay on top with the championship as much as she does. Natalia interrupted, saying Liv never would have beat a healthy Rousey. Then Ronda came out selling the knee. She congratulated Liv and told her to savor the moment because defending the title is much tougher. Rousey said she was not dressed to fight, but she would. So Natty attacked her before getting thrown out of the ring by Liv. So we got Rousey against Natalia in a rematch of what we just saw, by the way, at Money in the Bank. Rousey was basically wearing street clothes, a tank top, yoga pants, while limping around the ring. Natty walked up the ramp selling a knee, so Ronda tracked her down. She put Natty in an ankle lock three different times and one in two minutes. Again, this was SmackDown. So every time I say SmackDown, I want your brain to say, okay, what Adam is about to say is going to be absurd. Okay, but that's how I want you guys to listen to the rest of the show. So I figured Cole was in the ring for the interview because Rousey was not there. So for him to mention a potential rematch, only for Rousey to later come out and suggest it was happening without a direct challenge or an official announcement was strange. And then we get a Money in the Bank rematch that ends in two minutes, despite Rousey selling an injury at the start of the match, not to mention the wrestling between Rousey and Natalia was awful. This shit was terrible. Liv saved it from being ugly just because she was there and got a good crowd response. But this was bad. There was nothing redeemable about this thing except for Liv. It was truly horrendously conceptualized and terribly booked. We, or at least I, really liked their Money in the Bank match a lot more than I expected it to be. Same. So to then, so to then follow it up with this kind of nonsense was just like, you know they can do a lot better. You know they can do a lot more. It's just WWE not giving them anymore and them having to cram so much into three minutes where they're going outside the ring and doing all this crazy stuff. So, you know, you want to get back to Ronda live. Sure. You could have done it in a more interesting way that's not kind of in, insulting to the viewers, which is what they did. And insulting to Natalia, who went toe-to-toe yeah. with, with Rousey at the pay-per-view, only to lose in two minutes the next week on SmackDown. What sense does that make? Exactly. On Raw, Becky Lynch cut a promo on the announce table saying the way Liv won the title is like winning the lottery, but she works her ass off every week for a paycheck. She was incensed at Carmella getting a rematch for the title, despite the fact that Becky claimed she earned one by beating Asuka in what was not a number one contenders match, but certainly seemed like one. Then she demanded a title match at SummerSlam against the winner. So there was an announced Raw Women's Championship match, Bianca Belair against Carmella. Belair cleanly caught Mella flying at like her waist, which was incredibly impressive. She put her into a cool vertical suplex. Mella did botch a couple cell jobs, but she got her knees up on a standing moonsault with a heel kick for a near fall. She stopped the KOD, hooking her arms first on the ropes and then her feet to the top rope, which was pretty inventive. Then she countered the KOD into an X factor, which was probably one of the best KOD counters we've gotten yeah. to this point. Yeah, yeah. Belair ran Mella into the ring post with the referee counting. Mella slipped inside and Lynch distracted Belair at ringside, who was dumb enough to ignore the count and instead argue with Becky. Mella then won via count out in 13 minutes. She taunted Bianca after the bell, only E to KOD to end the segment. Everything about this was going perfectly fine until the finish, which was absurd. The match, first of all, Belair-Mella was far better than what they did at Money in the Bank. This is the exact opposite 
of the SmackDown booking, where they gave us something that was way worse. Here, they gave us a match that was way better. In fact, I would not Mm -hmm. be surprised, Chris, if this is what the match was supposed to be at Money in the Bank, and maybe it got trimmed for time or something like that. This was actually one of Carmella's three or four best matches in WWE, like singles match, one-on-one. And instead of allowing all of that to transpire with Belair just easily winning and retaining the title, they made Bianca look like a dumbass babyface, which was nonsensical also, given Becky demanded a title match against the winner. You need a clear winner to get your title match, don't you, Bex? Like, as a heel, she should be smart enough to say, well, Bianca's gonna win, great, then I'll get my championship match. It was also another in WWE's endless string of countout finishes that we've gotten over the last three months. So now we're either going to get Bianca Mella three, which no one wants, and then Bianca Becky three, just four months after WrestleMania, or they're going to run them in a triple threat to call back to last year's WrestleMania, because don't forget, all three of them were involved in that segment. And I don't think Mella ever actually got a match there. So I'm going to go good here, even though you guys just heard me criticize this a lot. I'm going to go good because all of the elements were strong. Becky's promo was good. The match was very good. But the finish obviously was annoying. The conceptualization of this was annoying as hell. But I did enjoy the elements. So yes, I'm going with good. Definitely a good. That spot where Bianca caught Carmella was insane. And when it happened, I was like, no, this sh- this should end the match. Like, I would blow I out my back. Bia- I think I would blow out my back if Mella jumped. Oh, well, okay. That the, the terminology like, I used there was not appropriate. But I think I'd blow blow out my back uh, catching someone, Mella or anybody, at my waist. Like flying this is in not a crossbody. This is crazy. This is not. This is not like Brock catching Chad Gable or something like that. Like they're pretty similar size. And so when that happened, I thought I assumed Bianca was going to win this match, and I go. That needed to end the match. Like, that's a spot that you end a pay-per-view with. Like, that was an incredible spot. The KOD uh, uh, flip into the X-Factor, another amazing spot. This match got better and better as it went on. And then you get that weird ending, and you're just like, oh, okay. That in in I, I assume we're setting up triple threat here. Um, but, like, my, my, thought, my thought was with Kayfabe was, Maybe Becky wants Carmella to win the title somehow because then it's easier to take it off Carmella, but it's only a count out, so she's not winning the title. I don't know. Well, it was a little it was a little weird, but this was a really good match. I assume we're heading toward a triple threat. And I also didn't like Bianca standing tall after the count out like Carmella barely got any of the heat. Becky barely got any of the heat. We're going off the air to the next thing with Bianca standing tall and her music playing. Like, right. you you lost all the heat from the, the heel move already. So that was kind of frustrating. But but overall, definitely a good segment. It's just tough because like, you know, WWE, to, to their credit, they planned to separate Becky Lynch from the Raw Women's Championship, right? The goal was to have Bianca Belair fight Naomi and Rhea Ripley. And neither of those matches happened during this gap of time between WrestleMania and SummerSlam. And if they gave us a four-month gap and reestablished Becky and had her be the title challenger at SummerSlam, of course, the idea of with Bianco beating her again, I would have been totally fine with that. It is repetitive. 
but it's a big money match. And their first match was so freaking good. Technically, their second match was so freaking good that obviously I could watch it again. I'm not going to complain about that happening at SummerSlam. At the same time, though, she hasn't been removed from the title picture because Naomi walked out and because Rhea Ripley got injured. And and we'll talk about it in a moment, maybe even worse than an injury, um, which to my great dismay. But because she hasn't been that removed, this just felt repetitive. It didn't feel as fresh as it could have been. I would have loved if they had Asuka win that match last week and did Bianca Belair and Asuka and have Becky Lynch do something else on the show. Or if they elevated Alexa Bliss in this position to replace Rhea Ripley, um, you know, the Ripley match was going to happen, obviously, at Money in the Bank. If Ripley's not cleared for this, to have Alexa Bliss kind of step in and be that person and have Becky lose that match to Asuka, continue her downward spiral, tell a longer term story and build Becky back up for the Ronda Rousey match at WrestleMania. Don't build her back up for this, build her back up for that. Now, maybe look, maybe Bianca beats her again and the downward spiral enters phase two. And that's exactly well, here, what Well, here's the thing, by, by the way, I don't, you're right about Asuka winning because Becky's not on a downward spiral anymore. So they can't promote that as her character. If she, loses she literally, to, if, if she loses to Bianca again and is unable to topple this one person, they can restart it is what I'm saying. You can make that the story. Like I can't get over this hump, but she right. beat Asuka last week and literally said as they're going off the air, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. Right. Like right. downward spiral is done. It's now. as of right now, it's over. I totally agree. And that's my, that's my concern. For, to do it for four months was not bad, or, or a little bit less than that, was not bad, but she had a title match in between because of yeah. circumstances. Like, it, again, it wasn't yeah. WWE's fault, but they kind of did still put her in that situation. They could have allowed Asuka to have that match one-on-one, saved Becky, and then run the Becky-Asuka non-title match, the no-holds-barred that we just got at Money in the Bank. So they never got to the Becky-Asuka non-title match that they were clearly uh, building. And they never removed Becky far enough from the title to make it feel fresh that she's back in the picture. That's the issue with what they're doing here. If they do a triple threat, for me, that's a little bit more palatable than having Bianca Mella on TV next week and then Bianca Becky one-on-one at SummerSlam, which again, we just saw. But really, it's tough to complain when you have two of the three or four best women in the entire company, arguably number one and two, the fact now that Sasha Banks isn't there. Um, fighting each other at your second biggest event of the year. It's kind of tough to get upset about that. No, and I think my guess is we get Carmella in the triple threat to take the pin. So you can save Becky and Bianca, so to speak. Well, you Uh, know what? Becky, Bianca really should happen at Clash at the Castle. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a UK pay-per-view and you have Becky Lynch. Like Now, maybe she's going to get a lot of fan support there, which would be a difficult situation because you don't want Bianca Belair to get booed necessarily, right? But that's a big money match for that show. You want to sell tickets to Clash of the Castle, which WWE struggling to do a little bit? You have you book Roman Reigns, Drew McIntyre, and Becky Lynch, Bianca Belair, and maybe like Tyson Fury against Sheamus. You have a very strong top of your card. Yes, I agree, and then that's what you want to lean into. And even if Becky's gets cheered, I think everybody, I think basic fans will understand. Hey, we're in, you know, we're in the UK. That's why they're getting cheered. Just like when CM Punk beat John Cena. Just like when CM Punk beat John Cena in Chicago. They're basically like, well, we're in Chicago. Everybody loves him. And Bianca's so over. Bianca's so over that I don't know that she's going to get booed. Whereas in the Cena situation, people were already booing him. 
So it's agree. Different. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move off this. We got plenty left to talk about. Uh, Bobby Lashley and Riddle had a match against Theory and Rollins. Riddle and Lashley got pumped up backstage. Riddle asked Lashley to watch Stranger Things with him so he doesn't get scared. Uh, Rollins later cut a promo on Riddle being a screw up who rode Randy Orton's coattails. Theory interrupted to ask for Rollins advice given his legendary money in the bank cash in. And that was it. Just a bunch of normal backstage stuff. So Lashley for the match assisted on a floating bro then caught Rollins Tope Suicida for a helicopter into the post. Then, completely out of nowhere, a suited Dolph Ziggler randomly entered and sat in a chair at ringside. Rollins hit Riddle with a sick inverted superplex for a 2.8 and 2.5. Theory got a tag, but his rolling dropkick was immediately countered into bro mission. Lashley had a really good hot tag with Rollins. He hit the almighty Spinebuster on Theory. Rollins came back with rolling forearms and a huge frog splash on Lashley for a near fall. Riddle hit the power slam and a draping DDT on Theory, but Rollins pulled him outside to avoid the RKO, only for Lashley to spear Rollins through the barricade. Theory snapped Riddle's neck over the top rope. I thought that was going to be the finish and Theory was going to win. They countered finishers. Theory then was about to win with his feet on the middle rope cheating when Ziggler pushed them off and Riddle hit the RKO for the win in 14 minutes. The crowd gave its biggest pop of the entire night for the main event finish. And then after the bell, Lashley and Riddle were celebrating when Lashley hit Riddle in the chest so hard that he actually fell down. I thought that was hysterical. And then Ziggler snuck into the ring and super kicked Theory's head off to end Raw. The barricade spot, it's becoming overdone. I will say though, Lashley taking out a small guy in Rollins, who's not that small, but Rollins into the barricade, as opposed to like a Roman Reigns, a Brock Lesnar, an Otis, it just hit differently. Like it almost yeah. looked like Rollins exploded when yeah, he went through yeah. the barricade. So it's overdone, but that's the one gripe I have. This was great. It was a really good change of advertised matches. Originally, it was Rollins and Theory. I presume the Ziggler spot was scheduled for that. And then it was going to be Bobby Lashley with an open challenge for the US title. But they did an open challenge or scheduled to have an open challenge on SmackDown. So doing that two times in a row didn't really make any sense. And the introduction of Ziggler is super intriguing because it came out of nowhere. Now, I assume he's there to mentor Theory. And maybe that's what he's going to be doing from like a tough love perspective. But it kind of seemed like a face turn. The way he was acting, he put his hand in the air after the match was over. So look, this was obviously good. And I'm legitimately curious to tune in next week and see exactly where this is going. That's what you want from a main event segment. It was one of the best segments, if not the best segment of the entire week, start to finish. I didn't grade any matches on today's show. This was a very entertaining match with a very good finish and a little surprise in Dolph Ziggler. All elements that make a segment good. This was good. Yeah, it it wasn't majorly consequential, but you got something new. You got the Dolph Ziggler part of it. And you come out of the show wondering, huh, what's Dolph Ziggler doing? I kind of want to tune in next week to see what he what he has to say. Like that's exactly that, that's exactly how you want to set that up. Um, w- when he comes out in his music hits, and it was just his music, not the one with Bobby Roode, which I really like his theme. He's had it forever, but I really like it. He comes out, and then they go to commercial. Normally, we would hate that. Like this doesn't in sports if something big happens, they don't jump to commercial. But this specific one. Because he was just like walking out calmly, you know, like like not rushing to the ring to do anything. 
and they go to commercial. That actually did feel like a TV show when someone makes a surprise appearance in a soap opera and then you go to commercial. Yes. That actually did work as a cliffhanger this one time. I normally don't like when they do that, but I actually did think that worked this time. So I just wanted to point that out. Um, I don't really know what the Ziggler thing is. Maybe, you know, I think we all thought, oh, he's going to team with Theory or do something here to help him along. Um, but this was a face move and he got cheered and it's been forever since Ziggler was a face. Uh, Theory's got a match for SummerSlam already. So I don't know. Do, do they just do a Ziggler Theory match on the go home or something and give him a win going into the Lashley match? I wouldn't mind that. I've said before, like Austin Theory needs to pick up wins in, in, a, in a feud win over a guy like Dolph Ziggler, a multi-time world champion would be exactly what theory needs. So I'm not sure where it goes, but I like the potential. Uh, Finn Balor had a match scheduled with Rey Mysterio. Before the match, Damian Priest demanded fans rise and no one moved. I should note, by the way, uh, the San Antonio crowd, there were 8,000 people at Raw, which is a big Raw, and it was sold out in terms of all of the seats that were made available were basically sold. The crowd was horrendous. Um, it was quiet, yes. the vast majority of the show. I did have one person tweet me, and you can certainly confirm you did say this uh, at the early part of the show, that it was so hot outside that everyone waiting in line to get in and just people living in Texas in general uh, were so hot that they were probably just exhausted and didn't want to stand or make a lot of noise and just wanted to sit in the air conditioning and watch a show. Maybe there is some truth to that, but 8,000 people to be as quiet as they were for the vast majority of the show was really unacceptable. Uh, this segment, them not standing, is not an example of that because they're heels and why would they listen to heels? I'm just, I, I'm using it as a jumping off point to mention that the San Antonio crowd, to my utter surprise, was not good. Not Lafayette, Louisiana, not that bad, but not one of the better crowds WWE's had recently. And they've actually had some really good TV crowds as of late. Anyway. Yeah, I, go yeah, ahead. I, no, go I agree. It, it could be the heat. I don't know. Like it's it's been over 100 basically every day for almost a, for a month now. There's no rain, at least up in Dallas anytime soon. So that could be part of it. Anyway, after demanding the fans rise uh, and no one doing it, Pre said the post-match attack last week was justice for Ray's bullshit before trying to convince Dominic to step out of his father's shadow and take control of his career. Bauer reminded Ray that they take out legends just like Edge. He said Ray's a bad leader and a bad father. Then there was a little bit of a mini brawl before a commercial break. So we get back, the match is underway. Balor chopped Ray's legs out while he was on the top rope. After he fell, selling a knee, he hit Balor with a sliding sunset foot powerbomb into the barricade. Ray hit a top rope hurricanrana for a near fall. A 619 came after that. Balor sat up Undertaker style to avoid the frog splash. Ray sold the knee. He kicked out of a crucifix. Uh, Balor, that is. Balor then countered Ray into a sling blade and an inverted slam before hitting coup de gras for the win. In somewhere like 12 to 14 minutes, it was tough because, again, it started during the commercial. Judgment Day tried to sell Dom on joining after the bell and did not attack any further. All parts of this hit for me. The promos worked. The match was entertaining. It got plenty of time. The right person in Finn Balor won. I'd like Balor to speak more and emerge as the leader, but that's not the booking. That's not what they're doing here, and that's okay to do something different. I have to imagine Edge is coming back really soon for a SummerSlam match, given the aired the highlight and they aired a couple of vignettes that we'll talk about in a moment, but this was definitely good. I do think Judgment Day could work if it's given a chance, but I'm not overly optimistic that it's going to get a chance to succeed. This was a low good to me. Like it was fine. Um, it doesn't help when as they're walking to the ring, 
Corey Graves says, we don't know what Judgment Day's motives are. <laughs> uh, that's your job to tell us that, you know. Like, it's like, your job and their job, yeah. And they did I'm tell the one, us their, and they have told us their motives. Kind of, but Corey Graves specifically saying that was very strange. Um, I, I, I guess this is signaling a Dominic turn at some point. I hope so. From, from Ray. I mean, we've been waiting for the Dominic versus Ray match forever. Uh, I don't know if they'd want to do it at SummerSlam or not, but I'm kind of dis, you know, if we get that, I'm kind of disappointed they gave it away. You know, like, like Judgment Day has been fun because of some of the surprises and stuff like that. And then for them to be like, hey, Dominic, you want to come in? And, and maybe he won't. But to me, it felt like they were going to they were kind of teasing it a, a bit too much. Step in the right direction for Judgment Day after what has been a pretty lackluster everything since the edge moment, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. I, they, they just they really dropped the ball after that. This is a step well, in the right so, direction. Real quick, some of yeah. it's their fault, some of it's not their fault. Like, no, no, I, I'm, I'm just talking in general. Yeah, it's not, it's not hitting the way it did in that moment. All the potential that we saw, right. Rhea Ripley not being there, is hurting that. Obviously, that's that's nobody's fault. But Damian Priest, he was he was good. He was fine when he was on the mic talking and doing his thing. But then when Finn gets the mic, it's just a whole other level. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. And, and, you know, he did this in NXT. He obviously created the Bullet Club. Like, he really thrives in these situations. And you know, both of these guys are, like, in their late 30s. It's not like they're young up-and-comers or anything like that. But um, I agree that I would like Finn to be the leader at some point. Um, but I but I don't mind Damian Priest getting these moments, too, because he's, he's, he's not bad at them. He's good at them, too. You're very kind to Finn Balor, who, by the way, Finn Balor looks like he's 25, uh, but Finn is yeah. 40, not in his 30s. And Damian Priest is 39. So they're actually both basically 40 years old. Yeah. Um, but they're still doing a fantastic job. And yes, Balor, it would be nice if he was elevated further from this. We say it. We hope we can speak it into reality. Look, I had a lot of success speaking Liv Morgan into reality. It took a year and a half, but we did it. Uh, so I'm going to speak the Finn Balor stuff into reality. And we'll see if that happens. Uh, so I mentioned the vignettes. Um, we got a spooky vignette that aired early in Raw. It was the same one that they've aired now. It was the fourth time they aired it. But we also got a second version, finally, that aired later. This is what I mentioned wanting last week. This one included Mick Foley's flannel shirt, Randy Orton's RKO t-shirt, the NWO style one from back in the day, one of John Cena's hats, and a brood goblet. I talk all the time about WWE beating us over the head with storylines like we're children. This is another example. One or two hints would have been totally fine. But like five obvious calling cards in each vignette, it completely ruins the mystery for anyone that has a brain or knows any wrestling history. And what's even worse, WWE normally rocks video packages. They're unmatched when it comes to teases and, you know, highlight packages and, and, and all this type of stuff. And we don't normally grade stuff like this because we just usually say, hey, you know, that was kind of interesting. I'm curious to see what happens next. But I'm grading this because this was straight up bad. Like, I don't see how this version of Edge is going to be anything or going to accomplish anything but immediately kill Judgment Day. Edge comes back. He's the brood Edge. He shits on Finn Balor and beats him. And then where do both of them go? Where does Balor and Judgment Day go? And where does Edge go? There is no clear direction. There's no main roster champion, uh, world champion on Raw right now. And you just look at this and you kind of say, to what end is all of this happening? The end is, I guess, Balor versus Edge. And that's it. 
I mean, does Edge create his own new group? Does he do a new brood and bring other people along with him? Dominic, perhaps. Maybe Dominic joins along with Edge instead of going to Judgment Day. I don't know. I'm trying to make something interesting happen here, and I can't. The vignettes are awful. And again, they beat us over the head with who it is, like children, which has not previously been the case for WWE. And that is why it was particularly disappointing. The vignettes aren't awful. They're, they're, they're still very well produced. It is completely giving it away. Honestly, it's giving it away so much that I, I think they should just lean into it and tell us it's Edge and show us Edge kind of looking at these things, the, the Mick Foley vest, the, the RKO shirt, just kind of like have Edge take us through that because it's so obviously Edge now. Um, right. But But as for what the end is, yeah, I don't know. Like, do you bring Edge with video back with video packages only to immediately have him lose SummerSlam? Like, I don't know. And if Judgment Day loses to Edge in the first match, like, they're done. And that's where you've kind of put yourself into this corner where Edge went away, but he's coming back and it's SummerSlam. So like there's, there's no there's no time to build Edge back up, be like, I'm coming for you, Judgment Day. Look at this, look at this wreckage I'm creating in my wake. I'm coming for you, Finn Balor. It's just like we're here and we got to do it. So it it is kind of rushed, I think, overall. Um, look, I'm not going to complain if we get Edge versus Finn Balor, Edge versus Damian Priest or whatever. It's not bad, but just like it feels like there, it feels like a lot of Judgment Day, there wasn't exactly a plan at the end of it all. Or there were plans, but they changed and then other circumstances happened that caused those plans to change even further. It's it's just been a start and stop situation. It's been very frustrating. Yeah. Uh, we had Miz TV with Champa on Raw. The segment opened with Champa explaining he was aligned with Miz to get attention and be in the spotlight at major events. Logan finally. Paul, yeah, finally. Logan Paul on screen repeated that he was going after Miz and not teaming with him. Miz gave him one last opportunity to retract the statement so they can become tag team champions or else Champa would take his place. AJ Styles said Champa doing Miz's dirty work makes him a coward with tiny balls and being Miz. The crowd chanted that Ezekiel came out, said his normal shit and got a tag team match approved. So we had Styles and Zeke against Miz and Champa. Miz beat on Zeke and screamed about his massive balls. The faces came back with Styles dropping Miz over his knee. Styles then rolled Miz into the calf crusher until Champa attacked and refused to stop beating on Styles as the referee instructed. Styles then hit the flinging phenomenal forearm outside after the disqualification and hit Champa uh, to kind of end the segment. Logan Paul later had a taped promo saying, once and for all, I am not teaming with Miz and I want you one-on-one at SummerSlam. He also said he'd be on Raw next week to address him live face-to-face. I was mixed on this whole thing. We asked for an explanation about Champa being by Miz's side and we got one that is completely acceptable. Really, albeit short, but acceptable. It doesn't really fit Champa's character, but it does fit the storyline and that's important. And then we actually got a nice length match with some good action and all four guys were able to get over a little bit only for it to end in a really weak disqualification when Miz tapping out to the calf crusher would have been perfectly acceptable. Now, I'm going to assume that Logan's promo will lead to an attack next week and then the tag match with Styles happening. Logan Paul and AJ Styles against Miz and Champa. Otherwise, the unfinished Styles storyline and the insertion of Champa does not make a shred of sense if they're not going in the tag team direction, even though Logan Paul said he wanted one-on-one. So I'm going to say good overall because it wasn't bad, but it wasn't particularly exciting. Yeah, again, it was fine. 
Um, Logan, yeah, I could see a situation where where Champa comes out, hits Logan Paul from behind. The two of them are beating him up. AJ comes in to rescue, and Logan says, "Okay, we're going to do a tag team match." Like, pretty simple. It's fine. The, his promo is fine too. Like, he's he's good at this stuff. Like, we don't like him. I still think he's going to get booed when he's in front of the crowd, but he's good at doing that stuff. The at the beginning of this whole segment, when AJ comes in and he delivers his promo, and he says, "That's that's someone who would." And Miz like stops him, keeps stopping him, thinks he's gonna say tiny balls or whatever. And AJ says, "Coward." Miz goes, "Oh, I laughed. Like it, it was a really good delivery of that." And then they hit the ball sign. Like I think you got to do like one of those per segment. They did a couple of them. It's too many, but if you keep it to one, short and sweet, it kind of it hits a little bit better. This was like I said, this was fine. It was what it was, nothing great, but it accomplished what it needed to. The only other thing I want to point out is there was a Raw Talk segment, and I don't watch those shows anymore because they're largely horrible, but I saw it on Twitter. There's a Raw Talk segment with Miz and Champa, in which both of them cut really strong, passionate promos. If they had taken the content of that segment and used it for Miz TV instead of what we got, we would be sitting here roundly praising how good Miz sounded and how good Champa came off how excited we were that Champa has a direction and passion and all this stuff. Instead, it's relegated to Raw Talk and 95% of people who watch Raw probably will never see it. So I tweeted it out from at Getting Overcast on Twitter. I want you guys to watch that segment, especially Champa's part. It's what he's capable of. It's what he should be doing on television. And it raised the rent for the feud. That got me more excited about this potential match than anything they have done on television to this point. And it's really unfortunate that it gets kind of relegated to Peacock and social media where basically no one's watching it. Yeah, we, we say it all the time. Hey, there's a pretty good uh, YouTube segment or interview backstage segment, the ones that aren't scripted that they throw on these shows. And you're like, oh, this actually is really good. This should have been on the TV show. Like Ezekiel had several vignettes about growing up and what his relationship was like with Elias. And you're like, oh, this is interesting of the character. But like, 12,000 people watched it. And it's like, you do the good thing, but you don't get the most out of it. And it's always it's always confusing. I have not watched this clip. I'll watch it when we finish this up. But I believe you because we've seen it all the time. It wasn't some outstanding thing. I don't want to make it sound like it was like the greatest thing ever, but it, it was very good is, is the point. And it was mm-hmm. deserving of being on television. That's the thing. WWE has talent that is capable of so much more than they're, than they're doing. And I'm not just talking about the wrestling. But in terms of promos, selling matches, getting you excited for what you're watching on television, I would prefer, I know WWE wants everything scripted. If they want to make sure that everything is approved before it goes on air, I would rather WWE insert taped promos and taped backstage segments throughout the show in which their talent is able to go off the cuff and kind of cut their own promos and then have those promos be approved as opposed to doing it live and scripted, which is just horrendous in many cases. So Champa, good for you. You got to speak two sentences on TV. You should have been able to talk for three or four minutes. We we really should have been able to fully understand your motivation, which he got across in this promo, not so much just, oh yeah, I want the spotlight, which is really a very lacking explanation for aligning yourself with Miz when you're a multi-time NXT champion and one of the best wrestlers in the history of that brand. But I digress. Over on SmackDown, we have the Usos. 
against Los Lotharios in a championship contenders match. This started during a commercial break because ring entrances started with 20 minutes left in SmackDown. Again, SmackDown, so turn the dial in your head, like I said earlier. Uh, the main event was still remaining after this as well. The Usos won in a couple minutes with 1D. After the match, Kayla Braxton asked them about getting away with the win at Money in the Bank. Then she said they cheated, which they didn't cheat. The referee just counted poorly. That's not their fault. Um, Braxton then said there were rumors of a special guest referee for the title match at SummerSlam. I didn't completely mind the booking of this, like to let the champions look strong and just beat a nothing tag team. But the interview was absurd, which made it bad. On top of that, there is zero continuity in this tag team championship storyline. The Profits literally won a match to pick a stipulation at Money in the Bank two weeks ago. Yet, they never got to pick a stipulation and they didn't do it. Now there is a stipulation for the rematch, which is appropriate, but the Profits didn't get to choose it. And I'm sorry. Think about this in kayfabe for a moment. Why would WWE use a special guest referee who presumably would do a worse job than someone who is a referee by profession? It's like going to Ruth's Chris and getting an undercooked steak. And instead of sending it back for another chef or the main chef to cook it properly, saying, you know what? Let's leave Ruth's Chris and let's go to Outback. That's the equivalent of this. It's completely nonsensical. Maybe the choice is going to be a pleasant surprise, but the whole thing is absurd. And the deal with the stipulation and not following through the lack of continuity, it really angers me. Well, it's weird. Like, uh, I, I get the idea that, hey, like a normal WWE referee missed this pin. So we need someone else to make sure they get it right. But mystery guest referee is more likely to make that mistake. Like, you, you, you can you can kayfabe, like, there's an investigation into the referee about why he missed this or, or, or stuff like this. And, and maybe a company investigation into an employee is not the proper thing to do in kayfabe right now. But like you could lean into that instead of just saying, oh, something happened. So we got to do something different. And here it is. And it's just like, it doesn't make any sense. This is a mess. It's everything about this Usos profits feud. The whole time has been a complete mess. Ultimately, they gave us a banger of money in the bank. And we assume they will again at SummerSlam. But they're really, really struggling to build a story around this, which is something they never had an issue with with New Day Usos. Like you just get them out there and talk to each other and you can feel the hate and the animosity and, and kind of do that. Instead, it feels like cartoonish type stuff's happening or just like things that aren't how normal people act or react are, are happening. It's just like, stuff just kind of floating around this whole feud and it's kind of just a real mess. Yeah, not everything on on Raw or SmackDown or in WWE needs, when we say we want things to be better, we don't mean everything needs to be serious wrestling, but certain things should be. And this is one of them. This should be a serious feud and it continued on Raw, which is kind of what I think you're alluding to. We had Angela Dawkins against Jimmy Uso as a scheduled match, which repetitive and a rematch that I was going to complain about. Uh, but so on Raw, the Usos and Profits each cut their standard promos at one another. When R-Truth interrupted and claimed to be a certified tag team counselor, the Usos didn't want to hear from him unless he had a referee shirt on, which he did. Truth then did some comedy and wanted to fight the Usos in a six-man. Then MVP came out with Omas, suggesting he team with the Usos, which they obviously accepted. 
Truth screams, remember the Alamo, and the faces attack the heels only to get beaten down very quickly. So then after commercial, we get the match, Usos and Omas against Prophets and Truth. The Prophets took the Usos out with topes, only for Truth to try the same thing, but Omas caught him, of course, and just crushed him. The Prophets pushed Omas into the ring post with Dawkins hitting a flying assisted back elbow for a near fall. Montez Ford ate a pop-up neckbreaker. Omas threw Truth into the steel steps, then tagged in from ringside, catching Dawkins with his double choke slam for the win. First of all, Omas's final tag was illegal. You're not allowed to tag from ringside. You need to be on the apron. Um, yes. So that was absurd. Secondly, you have truth in this match. Why then do you have Dawkins take the fall? What the hell kind of sense does that make when the Profits are your number one contenders who are going to be in a huge tag team title match at SummerSlam? Why would you have one of them lose when you have our truth in the match to take the fall? Again, just an infuriating decision that was made for no good reason. That said, the truth stuff was funny. He is a national treasure. And the match was super entertaining from a wrestling standpoint. So it's good, but man, it's like WWE actively tries to get things wrong or do things the worst way they possibly can for no legitimate reason. Yes. Like, like they, I don't know if they announced Dawkins versus Jimmy at the beginning yeah. of the show. I don't know. They did not announce it. So they were face to face in the ring. Or, or I'm sorry, the Usos came out for like their extended entrance and there's no announcement of why they're there or what's happening. And then yeah, all, of sudden, well they, all of a sudden, they flash a graphic, Angelo Dawkins versus Jimmy Uso. And then we never well, even get the match. And they had like tweeted it like five minutes prior. It okay. popped up on my timeline. I was like, oh, are we getting this match? I had no idea. And then like, I'm kind of not paying attention. Next thing I know, our truth's out there and we're doing a six man. I'm like, why would you announce five minutes prior? Hey, we're about to do this match and then not give it to us. Just don't. Tell they did the don't. same thing on SmackDown with a women's tag team match that I'll get yeah. to in a little bit. Just like, just like, don't tell us you're about to do something and then immediately change it. Just give us the thing. That's the, the second part of it. It's so weird. Right. Setting up the six man didn't need they're, they're, a singles match did not need to be scheduled to no. set up the six man. No, just say the Usos are out there talking and the yeah. profits interrupt and then someone interrupts and then we have a match. Like, it's fine. Like, I, I know sometimes we want to pretend there's structure to the show, but we're only informed two minutes prior that there is structure to the show before the structure is thrown out the window. So the, the match was fine. Again, it's kind of in a spot with Brock Roman where it's like, there's nothing really more to do. You're just kind of biding time. And instead of going deeper into the relationship between these teams or trying to build a real story. We're just going to throw our truth and Omas in there and do something. So like it was fine. Like a lot of the stuff is like right on the edge of bad and low good where it's like, it was fine. Ultimately inconsequential. And we yeah. move forward. Yeah. I mean, when we call something good, we're not saying it's great. Not, you know, sometimes it is, but you know, we're not always saying it's great. Sometimes it's just like, okay, it was entertaining and enjoyable and, and mm -hmm. nothing, particularly bad or insulting happened. And, and that's mm -hmm. what this was in particular. Uh, Pat McAfee was off commentary for SmackDown playing in a celebrity golf event. So Corey Graves was in his place. Happy Corbin joined commentary a half hour into the show. By the way, this is off McAfee signing a multi-year contract extension with WWE that was announced last week. That is all applicable for the following segment. So Gunther held an open challenge. Ludwig Kaiser said no one is worthy of standing in the ring with Gunther, let alone challenging him for the Intercontinental title or watching him wrestle. He said they're doing the open challenge because it's customary and Gunther got loud what chance as he spoke. 
Shinsuke Nakamura answered with Corbin and Graves going nuts on the announce table like McAfee usually does during Nakamura's entrance. Shinsuke got in Gunther's face, but said that Gunther wouldn't accept his challenge. Commentary then explained that Kaiser wanted to vet the opponent first. So I'm going to keep going here. But why are you calling it an open challenge if the person is not going to be defending the championship, let alone wrestling in the match? Why don't you just promote it as Gunther seeks his next opponent? And then you have Ludwig Kaiser say when he when Shinsuke Nakamura comes out, okay, Shinsuke, you think you deserve a shot? You have to go through me first. Why is that so hard? Is that not a hundred times more sensical than what they did? Yes. Okay. Like, of course. Okay. So then we get the match. Nakamura Kaiser. Shinsuke hit Kinshasa to win in six minutes. That's really, that's all there is. Uh, we only got about 90 seconds of the match as nearly the entire thing happened during commercial. Gunther screamed at Kaiser to stand up after the bell. Fans chanted USA because that's the only way they know to react to someone who's foreign. Mm-hmm. Gunther pushed, or I said pushed, punished Kaiser with three huge chops to his chest for his failure in losing the match. And I will give the fans credit because they really got into this. After the second one into the third one, they were really excited. I think they even chanted one more time. And then WWE unnecessarily piped in really fake booze at the end. Yes. Mm-hmm. This was just so convoluted in its setup. But I'll tell you, my first thought when Shinsuke came out was I cannot believe they're throwing away one of the few legitimate legitimate challengers for the title with an open challenge on TV. So I'm glad on one hand that wasn't the case and the match didn't happen, but the segment on its own was crap. So as long as they don't overdo it, the chop punishment, it could definitely get over and lead to a face turn for Kaiser down the line. The Nakamura... Gunther booking is a great idea. I think they should save it for Clash at the Castle. You have two international guys in a big Mm -hmm. match. Gunther, obviously, he's not from the United Kingdom, but people over in the United Kingdom know him very well because he wrestled there for such a long time. So if it was me, I would would have totally saved this for September. That's not what they're doing. Obviously, we're going to get it sooner than later. I wish it was on SummerSlam. It's probably going to be next week or on the go-home SmackDown for SummerSlam, knowing the way WWE books the Intercontinental title. But again, really messy segment. There were enough solid elements that it wasn't terrible. But again, another another borderline good-bad type of segment. And I have to lean bad here because there was really nothing to sink your teeth into from a storyline standpoint or really a wrestling standpoint because we didn't actually get to see the match. It was intriguing, the 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 Gunther Ludwig relationship. Um, for that, I, I'm my first thought was that I'm hoping this is not leading toward a breakup already. Like I hope no. it's not. No, no, no. I, I I'm really right. hoping it's not Gunther's going to leave his sidekick because Vince decides to change his mind about him or something like that. I really hope it's not that. The idea that he has to be punished but that he's still with them. That's interesting. So like maybe they'll keep that you saying that they're probably going to, they're probably going to do Shinsuke Gunther at the go home SmackDown before SummerSlam feels so incredibly spot on and frustrating (laughs) because that is what they do when you're right. This 
to most wrestling fans <laughs> would be a SummerSlam match, a Clash at the Castle match. Let these guys go out, beat the living shit out of each other, and the crowd's going to go crazy for it if you just let them. But you're right that I don't think they're going to let them, and that's incredibly pre-disappointing if that's what they do. Because you're right, this at Clash of the Castle... Bring I the house down. I think it would go over absolutely huge. You want to talk about British strong style or something like that? Like you could really do that. I just don't think they trust either of these guys enough to put them in that spot. I hope I'm wrong. Well, they know. I, I just I disagree with that. I think they trust both of them. I don't think they care enough about either of them or the intercontinental right. title. I, I, I don't think I don't think they think people will care enough. Correct. That this is a stadium show type of match. Correct. That that is. I completely agree with that. I mean, the booking that I would do is. Nakamura and Gunther at SummerSlam. Uh, Nakamura barely loses and gets injured because you need a reason to keep him off TV. The build to Clash at the, ca- at the Castle is a, a little bit ways off. I think it's five weeks, maybe, maybe even six, but at least five uh, after SummerSlam. So you need a little bit of time. So Nakamura gets injured in the match. He barely loses, but it's super close. Gunther on, on SmackDown has a couple open challenges, maybe beats a couple other people who go after him for the title. And they're like, who's here? Who's next to challenge? You know, three weeks out from Clash of the Castle, Nakamura shows up. They book the rematch. They have the rematch on the show. It's really not tough to book. I say this all the time. Low card, interesting storylines, mid card, interesting storylines. These two are made to fight on pay-per-view. It makes so much sense. And yet here we are where we're thinking, oh, they're just going to throw it away because number one, they're not putting Gunther on pay-per-views. And number two, they don't put the Intercontinental Championship on pay-per-views and have not I believe nope. in 14 months, 15 maybe at this point. It's just, it's poor treatment of the title. It's poor treatment of the champion who holds the title. And it's unfortunately not the best possible booking for either Gunther or Nakamura. Let's keep going. We had Alexa Bliss and Asuka against Nikki, Ash, and Dewdrop. This was on Raw. Asuka caught Nikki flying with a knee to the face. Then she hip attacked Dewdrop off the apron. Dewdrop pulled Asuka outside and missed a senton. Bliss then caught Nikki with her pendulum DDT for the win in four minutes. Normally, I would shit on the match being short, but this thing felt like it was 15 minutes long. The crowd did not make a sound, and there was <laughs> zero storyline. All commentary did was talk yeah. about Alexa Bliss's past and her potential future during this match. There was nothing wrong with this, but there was also nothing redeeming about it, so it's an unfortunate bad. It was so weird. Like, it ended, I was like, that's it? Like. We're not getting anything. We're not getting any hints toward anything. It, it, WWE like, will often hit you over the head with the storyline. And there was nothing here. I was so confused. I, I was thinking, oh, Dewdrop and, and Nikki Ash are going to get on track here. They're going to pin Alexa Bliss or something. And th- they'll be back on track or, or something. Or Dewdrop's going to get mad at Nikki Ash. And so we just got nothing. And so that was weird. And this is nothing new. But Alexa Bliss comes out, does her entrance. And I remain just so confused about her whole thing because she, again, was is one of the best emoters in the company, one of the best actresses in the company. And her entrance always had something like it felt mm-hmm. special. Either she was being super creepy or she was being super confident. She's just coming out smiling, holding the doll. And you're just like, what is this? Yeah. Who, who are you? What is going on? And, and that's again, that's not new, but it's just every single time she comes out, I'm waiting for something. I'm like, all right. What is Alexa Bliss now? And it's nothing. And look, she she had said in an interview recently that 
she had some pitches she made about the therapy and some and some different things she was going to do and the company just didn't go with it and i don't know why because they're doing nothing with her right now and it's so weird this whole segment was incredibly strange well that's the interesting thing like we criticized the fact that they did all those vignettes and then they brought her back one time and then she didn't show up again and then she finally did it with new music and a little looked a little bit different i don't mind the idea in fact i like the idea of doing those vignettes and all those therapy sessions as a way to explain why the regular normal back in the day alexa bliss was back but Mm -hmm. still had lily because you want to sell it for merchandise reasons that was totally fine but when they brought her back the second time, not at Elimination Chamber where she was a fill-in, but when they brought her back after WrestleMania, there was nothing. There's been, I mean, she's had like two line promos where she's like, I, I want to go after the Raw Women's Championship. But that's, I want to know who she is, what she's about, what her motivation is. Um, you know, start a feud just with someone else, like Nikki, have her fight with Nikki and, and try to try to change Nikki, get her away from the superhero Nikki Ash persona and bring her back to the old Nikki that she used to know as her best friend. There's so many different things they could do, but they're doing nothing. Alexa Bliss is basically like a creator wrestler right now. It's like you took the old Alexa Bliss Mm -hmm. in a video game, gave her her old aesthetic, but kept the doll and she just goes out and wrestles. And there's nothing unique or interesting about her. It's really not her fault. But at the same time, this is what Alexa Bliss kind of is when you remove the really strong push, like there's certain people where they don't get a strong push, but they're still super over here. You're seeing what Alexa bliss, the wrestler is. She's marginal in the ring. Um, she does that really stupid, like double knee flip over move that never lands impact or DDT. It's okay. Like I- I'm not trying to hate on her cause I like her. I really like her as a person and as a wrestler. And I think even as an in ring wrestler, she has some skills but she's not able to showcase them and throwing away a match like this, relegating Oscar to, to this. It, it, it was just bad, man. There was nothing redeeming about it. Nope. Over on SmackDown, we had another women's tag team match scheduled Lacey Evans and Aaliyah against Shayna Baszler and Shotzi. Lacey did not like the cheers that she got on her entrance. So she went back to gorilla and did it twice more. But obviously the more she kept coming out, the less cheers she got, the more she got booed. It made her disgusted to get that reaction. So she grabbed the mic and said, basically, people hate me because they ain't me. And that she deserves standing ovations everywhere she goes because she made sacrifices and she has gone through adversity. Then she went after the crowd and got a really short, you suck champ. She told the fans to go to hell unless she gets the respect she deserves. Aaliyah then stopped her from walking out. So Lacey caught her with a women's right and WWE added some extra piped in booze on the exit that really weren't necessary because she was getting real booze during her promo. This actually worked for me within the confines of this individual show. So on this edition of SmackDown alone, this worked and I thought it was a good, despite the fact that they had a promoted tag team match that they didn't have. It was one of two matches that were promoted and not held in the show and one of three times that we thought we were getting a match only to not get one. I'm glad that WWE is not trying to make her and force her into the female John Cena role, which I was concerned about when I thought she was going to win Money in the Bank. So this is a way better development by bucking expectation with a veteran who doesn't feel like she's getting the respect she deserves. But, and it's a big but, we cannot ignore what we said previously. Three months ago, when they did those sob story vignettes that I absolutely crushed, I said it would be really distasteful to do all of that 
for an immediate heel role, which is what we thought they might have gotten when they did that really weird introduction on SmackDown. Please stand and give the proper applause for Lacey Evans. She came out, still got a face pop because people didn't realize it. The difference between having her be a heel then and having her be a heel now is time. There is enough of a gap in time to make this palatable. But it really doesn't change what WWE did. They used, you know, drug abuse and, you know, all the stuff that were in those vignettes, the familial issues, her being a veteran and going through adversity to basically create a heel character, which is kind of distasteful. Ultimately, this was the right call for Lacey, and it's a far more interesting character than Goody Two-Shoes' veteran babyface. I just don't want to ignore the circumstances under which they did it. Yeah, Silver King is a big Lacey Evans fan. Um, you heard it here. <laughs> you heard it here first. Far no, you're, you're right. I, I wrote down literally all those same points. She, she, they've properly adjusted. She got some big boos every time she touched the ladder of Money in the Bank. I don't care what you want to do. She's a heel. Mm-hmm. You got to be a heel. And they're doing that. And I thought she did a good job with this, this promo, this en- the, the entrance stuff. She is good as a natural heel. The sassy Southern Belle character, even if it was kind of annoying at times, like she did the role well. She she works well as a heel. So she's in a spot now where it makes sense and you can you can go forward and do something. But yes, to get to this point after they completely botched the repackaging, which I liked, I I or at least I understood it, I felt it the stories of her family being addicts and abuse and all these things that she worked worked through. I really bought into that. Now they did too many of them and it went on forever. And, but, but, but I generally was like, all right, I'm rooting for Lacey Evans here. Like I I can get behind this. And then they completely botched the rollout as, as they've done with a lot of these things. You, you do the the weird entrance asking for respect. You move her to Raw. You move her back to SmackDown. You blew it. Like, you did a... Mm-hmm. I thought they did a decent job building up what they wanted Lacey Evans to be. And then they blew it with the rollout. And then at that point, you lost the moment. And so now people are booing her. And so you gotta, you gotta react and make her the heel. And they did. So they reacted the way they should have. But they completely messed up the path to get here. And... That is not Lacey Evans' fault. And so we'll we'll see. Also, unrelated side note on this, I really like her entrance theme. Me like too. It's obviously, it's, it's obviously a face theme, so I don't know if you're going to stick with it or not, but I really like it. So no, they are going to stick with it because the whole character is, I'm a veteran, I'm a Marine, you know, respect me, love me. It's like Kurt Angle. They didn't go away from the Americana yeah. gimmick with Kurt Angle. He's the Olympic champion. It's very much a female Kurt Angle. Um, just in, using military instead of Olympic glory. Yeah. It's, 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 it's not that different. Um, yeah. But so, you, yeah, so they botched the entire thing. But what's really curious is this. All those vignettes came down. And then when she made that entrance on SmackDown the first time before she got moved to Raw, the thoughts that we had, what we expressed on the show is, holy shit, they're going to make her heal after all of that, which is was simultaneously kind of like good in that it was unique and a, a twist, right? And swerving us to go one direction and then actually they actually went the other. But at the same time, distasteful given all of the topics that were brought up in those promos and how emotional they were. And, you know, they, they were trying to kind of sell us one bag of goods and then pull the rug out from under us, which again, there's merit to that in some degree, 
but not necessarily in the way they did it. And then they move her to Raw and really nothing happens. And then they move her back to SmackDown and she gets natural booze without them making her a heel, quote unquote. She got natural booze at Money in the Bank, which was the perfect time to now institute the heel turn and kind of say, okay, yeah, she is a heel. Here's what we're going with. What I'm curious about, Chris, is when she got moved from SmackDown over to Raw, did they change their minds internally? Did they say, okay, you know what? That didn't work. There was a lot of blowback from people who think this is going to be a heel and maybe this is going to be bad for us. Screw it. Let's put her on Raw and make her a face. And then still keep her a face on SmackDown, but only after she got the booze at Money in the Bank did they decide, okay, now we can actually go with it because the crowd doesn't want to cheer her? Or was this always the plan and they just kept going back and forth because they didn't know where to place her? I would I'd I be very curious to learn which of those is the case. I do not think this was the plan the whole time. I think they adjusted after Money in the Bank. But do you should've. think initially when she made that first entrance on SmackDown, it was what we suspected that she was going to no. be a heel? no. I think they wanted to make her a face. You think I please th- stand and give the proper respect. No, 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 no. I, I'm saying, I think they wanted to make her a face. Even with that then, line. No, 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 no. Wait, wait. Okay. Through the promos, through the vignettes, they wanted to make her a face. Okay. And then maybe at the last minute, either Vince said, nah, I want to make her a heel. Or Vince thought that was a face thing for a military person to do. So I, I don't think I, I so when do you think they decided to make her a heel before that SmackDown announcement the first time or, I think they tried, or, I think or they, this week or this past week? Both. OK, I think when the, I think when they brought her back to SmackDown, they going into Money in the Bank, they want to make her a face again. And then they, she got the reaction she did. And so she's back to a heel. Again. OK, so that's what I think. I think that after those vignettes, the plan was always for her to be a heel. They saw what. No, the, I disagree. I just, I just. No, I know you disagree. The, yeah, I know you yeah, disagree. During the vignettes, face at the last minute, Vince says, "Now nah, we're going to do a heel." It doesn't work. They switch it back to face, and then switch it back to heel after. Mark. Okay, so I think there was one fewer switch. There is. I think that the plan with the vignettes was for her to be heel. They saw the initial reaction it was going to get. Moved her to Raw with the goal of making her a face. Allowed her to basically be a baby face for the limited time she was on TV her on SmackDown over that two month period, whatever it was, and then saw the reaction or heard the reaction she got at Money in the Bank and said, perfect, we can go with our original plan and make her a heel. That's what I believe happened. But I think both you and I were, it's really the beginning that's the only different part. I think we both agree that they changed plans way too many times with her. And ultimately, I think we wound up at a good spot, which is a positive, but the trek to get there wasted a lot of time and wasted a lot of momentum coming out of those vignettes. Think about it, the vignettes for Alexa Bliss Wasted. The vignettes for Lacey Evans, wasted at the end of the day. That's a huge disappointment. Yep, uh, we had the Viking. Yep, yep, it's a problem. We had the Viking Raiders against Jinder Mahal and Shanky on SmackDown. Jinder tagged himself in. Shanky danced at ringside instead of on the ring apron, so he was unable to tag. The Raiders hit their new double choke slam finisher for the win in one minute. By the way, I didn't, the name Viking Experience was obviously terrible, but the Viking Experience finisher was good. Why don't yes. you just rename that? Instead, they're doing a double choke slam, which Omos does. Everyone does the double choke slam. It's totally trite at this point. And again, the match was one minute. Shanky then got crushed. New Day entered wearing Golden Girls gear, saying the Raiders deserved an ass beating. Apparently, by the way, they debuted that gear like last month, and I've just completely missed it. Anyway, they both got trampled with Ivar hitting an avalanche, world's strongest slam on Kofi Kingston. 
There were piped in booze. Cole said new vicious Viking Raiders at least five times. The gender shanky beatdown was okay. Having New Day get handled that way for a third time, totally nonsensical if you're trying to build a feud. Why would you not let them get over on them and knock them out of the ring or something like that? This was really, really bad. Yeah, it was it was done. By the way, I, I give the Lacey Evans segment a good. I don't know if we ever graded it. But I, I would give did. that a good. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was just weird. I honestly keep forgetting about New Day because they've just been doing nothing for so long now. Well, they're not the allowed old- to fight the Usos for the titles. And mm-hmm. Big E's not there. And yeah. it seemed like they were going to give Xavier Woods a singles push, but mm-hmm. they just stopped. There's just nothing going on with them. The, the only redeeming part out of this I liked was the world's strongest slam off the turnbuckle, off the top of yeah, the middle rope. Yeah. That, that should be the finisher right there. Like, I like that. So that's something. That's vicious. That's something to do. Um, they didn't call them the vicious Viking Raiders on the entrance. No, that was a positive. Which was, which was good. But they did say vicious several times, and you just it takes you out of everything. You can't, you can't invest in what you're watching on the screen when it's so obvious you're being pushed an adjective over and over and over. Yeah, Look at absolutely. the adjective, vicious. Let them be vicious. They don't you have to you don't have to call them it a million times. That's the whole thing. And lastly, Maximum Male Models showcased their 2022 tennis collection. Uh, Masay came out looking like Yannick Noah, which was a great reference by Cole spot on. He and Mansois both wore little tight white shorts. Uh, it was basically the exact same as last week, which was good and funny, but it kind of needs to go somewhere sooner than later. A third identical version of this with nothing else happening. I will give a bad just because you cannot do the same thing over and over. But for two weeks, the first one being funny, the second one being tennis wear, which was kind of comical. I'm still on the good side. Yeah, it was it was okay. I didn't think Max Dupree was as good this time as he was the first time. Mm-hmm. And usually he's really good. He he just seemed a little bit more subdued this time. And obviously we don't have the surprise of the you you can't replace the surprise of seeing Mansoir and Marseille for the first time. I was hoping they might add a third person or something like that. Like yes, keep exactly. it fresh or something moving forward. So it was fine. But you're right at, at this point. Like we can't. This cannot be a situation where we're doing this like five weeks in a row, which is something WWE so often does. So I just, with everything, I really hope there's a plan. Because remember, they delayed this for like three weeks. They said next week Max Dupree's going to have his models. And then it was not next week, not next week, not next week. So like, I hope there's a plan here. Well, I said last week that the delay had to come to an end and they had to deliver. And they did. So like all those delays, the funny backstage close talking segments, all of that continuously worked and we got to a point where it hit they hit a home run with it it was funny everyone bought into it it was great and this week again it was just it was a repeat of that which you're going to have when you have a Miz tv segment every week or whatever repetitive type of segment you have on tv it's going to be largely the same but at some point something needs to be a little bit different you cannot do this every week i'm curious to see what their ring entrance is like i assume they're going to be a tag team I want to see what their ring entrance is like. I want to see them wrestle. What's their style in the ring? What do they wear to the ring? Um, You know, what's their persona? Does Dupree get involved? Does Dupree wrestle? There are so many different ways to go with this, but they need to kind of start doing that. It's a perfect low card type of gimmick. It's working for everyone that's involved in it, but it is now time after the larger part of whatever, five weeks now, it is now part to kind of move on and develop them as actual wrestlers. Agree. 
And that is it this week for our full breakdown of SmackDown and Raw, along with everything else in the world of WWE. A longer show than usual, but look, the Silver King had to go off on his mini rant about SmackDown to start the show. And obviously we had a ton to talk about regarding Vincent Kennedy McMahon at the start of our main event. As far as what is coming up next here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, we will be back Thursday, as usual, with our latest AEW and NXT show. And then one week from today, same bat time, same bat channel, will be our next WWE edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. As of this moment, no scheduled special shows, uh, no interviews on, on, the, on the docket for this week. The Silver King, Vintage Chris Vanini, trying to take a little bit of a break from the nonstop episodes that we have been giving you for a very long period of time. But just because we don't have a special show, just because we don't have an instant analysis this week, is no less reason for you to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating for us on Apple. Also leave a review. Let everyone know how much you love the podcast, whether we're doing instant analysis, whether we're doing regular shows. This podcast. And those five-star ratings and reviews are so damn important. So please, please do that now that today's show is over. And also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Thank you once again to Vintage Chris Benini for joining. This is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein. We will see you on Thursday and again next Tuesday for our next WWE show. But at this point, I'm just going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.